0: Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, I speak with Mark Hunter, a.k.a. The Cobra Snake, the photographer who best encapsulated the party scenes of L.A. and New York in the noughties. Plus, we look at Hong Kong's media scene with Monaco's Naomi, Shu Elegant. And finally, foreign correspondent and author Nick Bryant. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show on a fun note. I spoke with photographer Mark Hunter, known as the cobra snake. He helped to define a look of a generation. Think the parties of the noughties, the hipster gland heyday. Definitely a sense of fun was in the air. He's got a new book out with images from the period. It's called The Cobra Snake. Y2KS Archive. Mark tells me more about the book and the amazing parties he photographed at.
1: Honestly, thank you for having me. And, you know, I grew up also looking at Monocle. I remember going to the newsstands and paging through and seeing how I could be a more sophisticated gentleman. But, you know, my true persona, you know, comes from this sort of hipster era of the early 2000s, and that's when I started documenting the art scene, the music scene, and everything that was sort of happening in LA and beyond. And, you know, this was very early 2000s and a different time, you could say. And you were very
0: young, actually, when you when you start taking all those pictures, going to all those parties. How did you manage to actually have all the access? I mean, tell us about the beginning of your career as the Cobra Snake.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, so when I first started, I I was a true fan of this world. And so if a band was playing, I would go and purchase the ticket and I would wait in line like everybody else to go see the artist play. The thing is, I would sneak the camera in. And that was sort of my my secret weapon. And so some of those early shows like the IAS and Kings of Leon, they're playing in rooms that you couldn't imagine. So small, a couple hundred people max, and the energy is just alive. And so bringing the camera in and not only shooting the band, but turning around and shooting the crowd is sort of what set me apart from everything and the fact that you could go online the next day and sort of relive those moments was a very sort of early idea of like what we have as social media now
0: and there was a sense of fun as well maybe it's the way you photograph people do you because i don't think you kind of tell okay you have to pose this way i think it's fairly spontaneous is that your style right
1: yeah totally it's a very candid energy that i like to capture and the thing is that again Nothing is very contrived. I'm just sort of a, a photojournalist documenting what I see.
0: And one of my favorite pictures, and, and again, and, and that's the sense of fun, I find. I think it's a Louis Vuitton bag full of kind of sugar-free Red Bull. I don't know why. <laughs> this, it, it, I, I thought it was a brilliant photo, actually.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think that actually, you know, the thing is this sort of silly moments mm. in between going to parties or telling the day in the life is sort of what I was really so passionate about is like, okay, we might start in some friend's apartment, we end up at a party and, you know, sneak into a public pool at the end of the night. And so you're seeing that whole story arc. And obviously, Red Bull was a huge sort of conduit to the party. And so you couldn't go anywhere without some Red Bulls in your bag.
0: And Mark, your book as well, it's almost a study of celebrity as well, because it's so interesting to see a picture of, you know, Lady Gaga having fun. I mean, I say Lady Gaga, there's Katy Perry, Amanda Lepore, Peaches, which I love. You know, it's quite hard I don't see it today, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm not reading the right places, but they were quite relaxed and not caring perhaps what other people would think of them.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think with those early images of these superstars, you really get their true persona and it also like sort of should trigger something in your mind if you were around at this time because you can think, oh man, I remember I saw those like photos similar to what Mark might've shot, but on TMZ or on, you know, these sort of trashy celebrity blogs. And here you're seeing such a more intimate moment where they're connected with me in the, and sort of our situation.
0: Tell us about what do you, I I don't know, I have a feeling that some of the aesthetic that we can see in your book is kind of coming back. People, there's a little bit of a rejection of this, you know, perfection on Instagram. Do you see that? And you see that with positive eyes as well.
1: Yeah, I'm a huge supporter of that. You know, it's been coined like the indie sleaze movement. There's this idea that what was happening in the 2000s, let's celebrate that. And that was, everyone is beautiful. Size, shape. You know, it didn't matter. You could be a little bit sweaty. You could be a little bit messy. And that was cool. Like, the thing is, we've gotten so wrapped up in in our image and sort of controlling our image and, you know, editing our images and manipulating things. What happened to us? 10 years ago, we didn't think like this. So I really support that, you know, stuff like the American apparel aesthetic. It was a simpler time. And I think a more sort of inviting energy.
0: Do you still take pictures like this? I mean, I know you're involved in all sorts of projects, which I would like to find out a bit more, but I mean, are you still a photographer at heart?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've actually been re-inspired by the the new generation and I've been out a lot more shooting in New York City, parties in Los Angeles, hoping to travel internationally again soon, just it's been a little bit tricky. But yeah, I mean, the party's back and there's a whole new what i say like there's a whole new gen now that we're going to look back at the photos that i document and stuff that's on social media and in 10 years from now I'll be like wow that was crazy and so i'm here supporting it and i want to see how we can sort of evolve and grow the culture
0: You know, that's nice that you're talking about also this new generation, because I was going to ask what was the the best part you've ever been that perhaps have been documented in the book? Could be a recent one, perhaps. Maybe it's not uh, necessarily from 10, 20 years ago.
1: That's a tough one. But, you know, like truly what I think about the best or, you know, when there's all those sort of like top 10 lists is more I'm like, let's make the best party. And so when everyone regrets, oh, I wasn't around in the early 2000s, I'm like, well, you're around now. So there's no better time than now. And truly, I'm seeing that happening and that energy is coming back, you know, with some of these late night raves, warehouse parties, art shows. There is a sort of a new guard that's taking over and carrying the torch.
0: And Mark, I love a physical object, so I'm very happy that I have all your images in this wonderful book as well. But at the time... Where could people could see your pictures? It was uh, via your website, right? The Cobra Snake. But were any publications also interested perhaps to print some of your pictures? What was your connection with them or was just exclusively on your website?
1: Yeah, well, I owe my success to the internet. The fact that I was able to upload hundreds and hundreds of photos that spread, you know, worldwide, thank you, the internet. But my true passion was with, with traditional print media. That's how, you know, I grew up looking at magazines, you know, watching television. And the thing is, the internet was a new concept. One of the main sort of early accomplishments I had was that the LA Weekly, which is like the local newspaper that would have all the arts and culture information, ended up hiring me to have a column. And so I went from figuring out what parties to go to in the LA Weekly to then shooting for them and having a weekly column. So print has always been very exciting for me. I think it's again, something that has a different feel and intention and it's already exciting with this book. It's with Rizzoli, the distribution's insane. And so it's all over the world and I'm getting people DMing me that they got a copy in Tokyo or in Lisbon or Greece or like all these uh, places around the world are now having, uh, you know, the copies of the book.
0: And, I mean, we spoke about the positive side, you know, this candidness of your photography. But what about, were there moments where you were a little bit worried or perhaps someone didn't actually like the picture? Were there any situations like this where they say, oh, please, can you remove the picture from your website? Have you ever encountered that?
1: Yeah, you know, again, a lot of the time, I don't even know the full story behind you know, people's interactions. And so, you know, there might be a, a couple making out and I'll get an email the next saying, oh, that's not actually my girlfriend, but how would I know? You know, so again, I, I oblige all, you know, I, I don't mind removing any photos because again, I think it's it's nice to celebrate this time. My lens is there to, to celebrate and capture things and not make things look bad.
0: Besides the, the website CobraSnake, what, what other projects are you involved? I know you've worked even with fitness for a while, right? Yeah, T- tell us yeah, a bit yeah. more. Tell us a bit more.
1: Yeah, totally. You know after you know many, many years of living in the nightclub, I realized you know I gotta sort of see what's going on in the day. And that's where I fell in love with hiking and being outside and running and started Cobra Fitness Club, which I was sort of like the hipster Richard Simmons, you know, sort of inspiring people that might not have traditionally worked out to to get outside, to be in nature, to get sweaty, and create sort of that party energy on the top of a mountain. Besides that, you know, I was running a pretty successful vintage store for many years, selling, you know, the nostalgia that I grew up on and also have sort of like moved into the ideas of working on some sort of documentary projects and maybe even a TV show if, if things go well. So really excited to sort of see how this 2.0 version of myself can take on the world.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Mark, listen, a pleasure talking to you and congratulations on the book as well. It's really, really nice. Kind of almost, I felt a little bit nostalgic as well. So, it was just, Oh,
1: thank it was, you. Yeah, no, I hope everyone can check out the book. And, you know, I hope to be back in the UK soon to uh, do some kind of book signing and enjoy the rest of the summer and, you know, keep partying.
0: Thank you very much, Mark. And the Cobra Snake Y2KS archive is out now published by Rizoli. We head to Hong Kong now. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant gave an update on the city's print media scene. From changes in the editorial standpoint of established papers, such as the South China Morning Post, to the thriving local indie magazine, here is Naomi with more insights.
2: So the SCMP is basically the the major paper of Hong Kong equivalent to what the New York Times would be in in New York. And it's an English language paper, uh, super high quality. It was kind of, you know, chugging along for many decades. And then in 2015, the Chinese tech company Alibaba bought it, put in a lot of injections of money, and that helped them really expand to new publications, hire a lot more reporters and new bureaus and be really ambitious in their coverage. So it kind of had this really great growth period. During the 2019 protests, which obviously were very turbulent across the city, SCMP had loads and loads of reporters on the ground, really good coverage. But then a couple months into the protests, as things started to kind of get more intense and more serious, sometimes you would open the print paper and see this almost very erratic coverage where the first couple of graphs and the headline would be kind of very anti-protest, calling them radicals and talking about them destroying things and, and vandalizing things. But then the later paragraphs, maybe not on the front page, would describe them as protesters and speak more even-handedly. And I think through that almost bipolar difference between that thing, you could see the conflict between editors who had maybe more pressure politically and the reporters on the ground. And that was when things started to change.
0: That's really interesting because it's such a respected paper. So I guess, you know, even perhaps for readers, it might be a little bit confusing like yourself.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think over time, it became more pronounced as well, online, especially because you can update the online articles, things would, people would notice little changes. And I think especially with the implementation of the national security law in 2020, which made a lot of dissent much more criminalized, newspapers in general and media in general became much more cautious and much more wary of potentially uh, violating this very broad law, which obviously had a lot of knock-on effects for for press.
0: And Naomi, at the same time, I know that Hong Kong had quite, uh, you know, an exciting and vibrant uh, newspaper scene or tabloid. There were a lot of newsstands. Did that change as well uh, in recent years?
2: It has, yeah. It's changed a lot since the protests and the, and the law that I just mentioned. So Hong Kong still has, if you walk around the streets, there's, you know, these little colourful newsstands everywhere with a lot of international magazines and papers, a lot of local papers. And it's just a very signature kind of visual feature of the streets. But there's been a lot of crackdowns on the press, many local online sites, but also print. The most prominent example would be Apple Daily, which is a Hong Kong tabloid. It was started by Jimmy Lai, a very kind of colorful tycoon and public figure. He made his fortune with the Giordano Clothing Company, and then he started a various media empire. And Apple Daily was kind of the, the signature. So it's a very colorful, lots of graphics, paper. There's a big apple with a bite out of it as the logo which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek, or maybe not so tongue-in-cheek, because he is very religious, but it's a reference to Adam and Eve. Jimmy once said, if Eve hadn't bitten the forbidden fruit, there would be no sin, no right and wrong, and of course there would be no news, which I just think is such a funny quote, and really encapsulates the style of Apple Daily, which was, you know, kind of half very gossipy tabloid and half really hard-hitting journalism that wasn't afraid to go after tycoons and government figures, which even before the protest was pretty rare. And of course, in... 2021, or before that, but mostly in 2021, it started going downhill. The assets were frozen. There were a lot of arrests. Jimmy lies uh, in prison now, as are a lot of other journalists were arrested for Apple Daily. And eventually the police raided it, and now it's shut down. And that was a really sad day, I think, for press in Hong Kong. On the last the day of the last publication, there were huge queues everywhere for people trying to buy the last issue.
0: Oh, that's quite sad in a way as well. I didn't know much about Apple Daily, but yeah, quite sad that how can it change so quickly as well, right? But I want to talk to you also about uh, magazines. I, I know you, you love independent magazines. You've done a few interviews here for the Stack in the past. H- how is that independent scene going? Perhaps they're not so political, so maybe they're not as affected?
2: Yeah, definitely. the The independent print scene is still, I think, very strong in Hong Kong, as you said. Not really so much on the political or quote unquote sensitive issues side, but there's really, really great publications um, there's manifesto magazine, which is a local fashion magazine. Um, it does all of its own editorial so photography and they put a lot of effort into like the glossy look like these beautiful spreads it's very big about the size of our own Confect magazine and it has a global outlook with a local uh, root, which is really nice. And then there's also Being Hong Kong, which I actually uh, interviewed the founders for an earlier episode of The Stack, which is another really collectible, I think it's quarterly if I remember correctly. So they spend a lot of time on each issue and they all have a theme. So there's like food theme or Lantau theme, which is a big island in Hong Kong, but it's always something about Hong Kong. And they put a lot of time into the types of paper. Uh, For one, they had this fold out rice paper, like calligraphy thing. And a lot of really beautiful photographs, a lot of contributions from artists and local writers. And um, I think it really shows how the the print media is still thriving despite all these challenges.
0: And just out of curiosity, finally, perhaps, what about the the kind of the international glitzy titles? I know, you know, I think Vogue, Tatler, they all have a Hong Kong edition. Are they quite popular? I mean, and and do they represent perhaps society in Hong Kong in general or they're quite generic in a way?
2: I think they definitely are pretty popular. Hong Kong obviously has these kind of dual sides of, you know, the protest pro-democracy, which has been in the news a lot, um, very intense side, and then there's also, you know, it's a very rich city. There's a lot of money floating around, a lot of appetite for luxury goods and watches, and that's why there's a yeah, there's a Tatler, there's a Vogue, and there's a Madame Figaro, which both of the last two were launched I think in 2019 actually. There are, I think, pretty classic versions of of those titles, but there is definitely a lot of uh, Hong Kong specificity, especially with Tatler, which is very, very widely read and almost like a meme in in how culturally relevant it is in, in the city.
0: Thank you very much, as always, Naomi. Finally on the show, we speak with Nick Bryant, former BBC New York correspondent. He just released a new book called When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. Andrew Muller spoke to Nick and began by asking how deep he thinks Donald Trump's legal troubles are this time around.
3: Look, he is in a lot of legal jeopardy, that's for sure. I don't think the Attorney General Merrick Garland would have signed off on FBI raid, of mar-a-lago his floridian mansion if it wasn't really serious and there was the possibility of a prosecution in the offing and of course we've had the overwhelming evidence of his insurrectionary criminality if you like ahead of january the 6th the storming of the Capitol, in the january the sixth hearings they like a trial really have laid out the case against donald trump and i think it is compelling i've always been one of these people who thought that the the risks of prosecuting Donald Trump outweighed the benefits because of the fear of making him a martyr because of the fear of the violent potentialities of his supporters the conservative wing in America uh, the conservative movement in America now has a paramilitary wing and that really worried me but you know given the overwhelming amount of evidence that is being presented at the moment, what are the choices there I mean it doesn't seem to me that a serious country like America can actually be cowed and surrender to the threat of violence um you know abraham lincoln used to speak about the religion the political religion of america should be upholding the constitution of the law and i i suspect that's a pretty good credo to live by in this moment
4: it does seem especially weird i guess that a nation as great and as powerful as the united states has led itself so far astray uh following this fairly preposterous looking figure. And the, the book starts with you meeting, interviewing Donald Trump in 2014. And you, you do make the point that as recently as that, the idea of him even running for president seemed like a bad joke. But if you go back to that point, what sense did you get of what was driving him? Did he appear to have any particular ambition or was it just about staying in the news?
3: Andrew, we met nine months before he came down that golden escalator, that portal into a very different political world and a very difficult, uh, different America. Uh, The subject of a presidential run didn't even come up. I was there to talk about his casinos in Atlantic City. I think the idea at that stage of a presidential run for Donald Trump, which he'd muted so many times before, seemed risible to me, certainly. And I think it seemed a little bit outlandish to him as well. I suspect he was slightly surprised by how well he did early on. And of course, he just had this immediate visceral connection with so many people who saw in Donald Trump and heard in Donald Trump the things that they had been wanting to say for years but didn't feel they could voice. He was a candidate who was saying all those things at the top of his voice.
4: The book starts further back than Trump. You're trying to make the point that he doesn't emerge from a clear blue sky, that he's a a culmination of something rather than an aberration. And and you start in 1980, 1984 with with Ronald Reagan. I know you have to start somewhere, but is that when you think the rot really starts? Or does this go back still further to Senator McCarthy, to the John Birch Society, all the way back to the know-nothings? The United States has always had this tendency, hasn't it?
3: absolutely uh division is its default setting and you can go back to the foundation of the american republic in 1776 i started in the mid-80s because that was the first time i went to america it was 1984. it was on the eve of the los angeles olympics it was this extraordinary summer of american resurgence they won every single gold medal it seemed in this modern day gold rush and Ronald Reagan perfectly captured the mood of the nation when he ran for re-election that year with the slogan, it's morning again in America. And I really wanted to try and make sense of that America that I sort of loved and fell in love with in 84, it's morning again in America, and the American carnage that I heard Donald Trump speak about in his inaugural address. And I was still about 50 yards from him when he said these words, and they were just shocking and so dystopian. I wanted to make sense of that shift. And, And like you say i mean the argument of the book the thesis of the book is that trump wasn't an aberration he wasn't a historical accident he was the culmination of political economic cultural technological racial forces and trend lines that have been emerging for decades
4: but where in particular do you fit reagan on that trajectory because he does now and your book does make this point occupy a very strange place in republican mythology in that he's venerated almost worshipped and yet if the ronald reagan of 1980 or somebody with exactly those convictions was to appear now the current republican party would ride him out of town on a rail and and damn him as some sort of snivelling lily-livered communist
3: Yeah, there's so much romanticism around Ronald Reagan, who raised taxes. He brought about an immigration bill that the modern day Republican Party would reject. He worked in a bipartisan way with the Democrats again, in a way that you can't imagine the modern day Republican Party doing. He actually appointed to the Supreme Court, his first appointee was a woman who supported Roe versus Wade, again, unthinkable in the modern era. But I do regard him as a godfather of polarisation. He was one of those conservatives who really turned the American people against government after the New Deal of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The government was pretty popular. People thought it offered them a, safe, a social safety net. They, they thought that government did good things. Ronald Reagan really changed the thinking around that. And I think a lot of the anti-government rhetoric has ended up becoming sort of anti-democracy rhetoric, which is deeply worrying.
4: I did want to ask about the reception to your book in the United States, where it has already appeared and indeed has been seen in the Oval Office. What kind of response have you had? Because if there is one thing that I have noticed in my own travels among Americans of all political persuasions, it's they tend to bristle a bit at being criticised by not-Americans.
3: I think there's been a bit of a, a sort of divide uh, in between you know, red states and blue states when it comes to the book. I mean, critically, thankfully, it's it's received a lovely reception when I've gone on television shows like Morning Joe. A lot of the people who frankly know a lot more about American politics than I do seem to agree with the thesis. And I think it was actually because Biden may have been listening to me on Morning Joe once, this, this really important political show that airs early in the morning on MSNBC, i think that's what got him interested in the book and it it is actually in the oval office at the moment and i'm hoping he'll read it because it seems to be on the shelf for about the last 12 months and i'm not (laughs) sure he's actually opened it but i think the key point to make about the book is it's a love letter i'm not Mm. anti-american there are many times earlier in my life when i would have happily taken up u.s citizenship when i first went there as a teenager when i was reporting there after 9 11 i felt 9 11 very personally because i loved america so much and it's a love letter that really becomes a lament it breaks my heart that i thought we should and my family did too that we should leave america and come and live in australia because we had an american daughter and it was almost as if we wanted to protect our american daughter
0: from the land of her birth That was Nick Bryant speaking to Andrew Muller. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And And we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, go to monaco.com to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. It's from someone that is featured on the Snake book. It's the wonderful Paris Hilton with Stars Are Blind. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.